This is the Unseminary Podcast. Stuff you wish they taught in seminary. Welcome to the Unseminary Podcast. My name is Christine, one of the hosts of the podcast. And as per usual, I am joined by Rich, the founder of Unseminary. Rich, you've got a new article for us to discuss today. Yeah, so this one, we're talking about COVID still, uh, which is a little crazy a year later. Here we are still talking about COVID. But yeah, today's article is Pandemic to endemic five questions your church may still need to answer about COVID-19. You know, when I look back over this last year, there were uh, really, you know, in a lot of ways are there are all kinds of kind of changes that were accelerated by COVID. We've talked about that before, how, you know, that when we see, um, you know, really what has happened because of COVID, it really is just accelerated things that were already taking place place on the positive side. You know, hey, a year later, so many of our churches are now online, engaging people online, which is a win. So many churches before were struggling with that. Now, so many of us are doing a great job on that. On the negative side, there are definitely some negative impacts that have happened because of COVID. Uh, one of them that sticks out to me is our friends over at Barna did some research, which we talk about, we linked to in the article, that found that 20% of the people that were attending our churches a year ago aren't attending anymore, are no longer attending. And um, and that's whether it's in person or online. And, you know, I think all of our churches are struggling with that in one way or another, trying to figure out how do we reconnect with them. But it does appear, uh, you know, even though our vaccines are rolling out really quickly across the country, which is great to see um, that really what we were kept calling a pandemic might be shifting into what's called an endemic uh, in the in the coming years here. So what is an endemic? So I am not a scientist, nor do I play one on the internet. Uh, however, an endemic is uh, when an infection, so in this case, this is COVID-19, when an infection in a population uh, is is at a, a a constant, is constantly maintained at a baseline level in a geographical area uh, without any in- external inputs. So what does that mean? So chicken pox, for instance, is endemic in the United States while malaria is not. What does that mean? Chicken pox continues to uh, filter through the population, is still a part of what happens in uh, our culture uh, while malaria is not. It's not It's not co- constantly spread uh, throughout you know, our, our, uh, our communities. So endemic, it really is just a way to refer to an infection that is going to have a persistent long-term impact. And I guess the part that's kind of captured my thinking recently is I think we're all hoping that these vaccines will end COVID-19, that there will become a day soon where we can say COVID-19 is no longer with us. And I'm not sure that that's actually a fair assumption. I'm not sure that's actually what's going to happen. Um, And just because of some reading that I've been doing recently, I think we need to think about it a little bit differently. It it would appear like COVID is going to pop up from time again, time and again, over the coming years uh, in various regions throughout the country. Some of that reading that you mentioned, what, where have you been digging in to learn more about this becoming an endemic? Yeah. So we've linked to these in the show notes. You can, uh, you know, jump in there and and take a look. So there's a health.com article called uh, What is an Endemic Virus? The the WHO, the World Health Organization, warns that COVID-19 may may never go away. And there was uh, 
a quote there from uh, Dr. Michael Ryan. He's the executive director of health emergencies program at the World Health Organization, where he said, it's important for us to put this on the table. This virus may become like uh, any other endemic virus in our communities and that this virus may never go away. Based on shifting variants of concern and vaccine rollout, many communities across the world may simply just need to deal with the impact of COVID-19 for years uh, if not for decades to come. So there was also One Nature, uh, this journal of science. You've probably heard of that before. Uh, they, there's an article there, which we've linked to, which you don't need to dive into, but it says the, co uh, the title of that article is The Coronavirus is Here to Stay, uh, and Here's What It Means. And it really dives through uh, some studies of both kind of what's actually happening and then the opinions of uh, which again, it's just opinions, but opinion of scientists and doctors who are working on COVID-19 issues. And the thing that stuck out to me there was 60% of scientists on the front line of this thing are saying, hey, this thing will probably shift into a long-term endemic rather than a pandemic that we put to bed. And then there's a Reuters article, uh, when will it end? Uh, how a changing vir virus is reshaping scientists' views on COVID-19. Um, and, you know, part that was interesting here was there's this official uh, marker that the U.S. government has on kind of when life will return to normal. And uh, they don't really talk much too publicly about this. This article pulls it apart. But that uh, date keeps getting pushed back. So it was late summer, then it was Christmas. Now it's moved back to March 2022, uh, which tells you that, uh, you know, in the kind of non-political side of how this virus is being dealt with, that at the kind of highest levels of government, there is a, a sense that this thing is going to continue to uh, to go on, to continue to to spread out. And so I think we need to think about these questions. It's the kind of thing that I think it'd be good to get the leaders from your team together and kind of wrestle through some questions to think about, hmm, is there some things we need to kind of think differently about this rather than the push to just say, hey, let's reopen, rather than the push to say, let's just get uh, all our buildings reopened. Maybe we should be thinking about this a little differently. All right, so you got those five questions. The first one is, how will your kids' ministry respond to persistent surges? So one of the clear realities of this endemic is that at least for the coming year, maybe 18 months, uh, we're going to have to deal with COVID-19 surges, particularly amongst the young. Uh, there's been very little conversation now publicly about vaccination uh, among those people under the age of 18. There are good news. There are uh, tests that are beginning to do, do on this front, uh, but... Uh, you know, we may be impacted, continue to see uh, education impacted for uh, a while to come. The question I have for you is what difference will it make to your church as you look at your weekend services and the way uh, that you do kids ministry if uh, the school districts in your area over the next coming years have multiple weeks where they go back to online education. Many churches across the country have kind of pinned their return to kids ministry to what's happening with the local school boards. But if this becomes an endemic and we see consistent flare-ups among the young, that will force, uh, play the hand of school boards to say, hey, maybe we need to do 14 days of, of home learning. What would that do to your kids ministry? Uh, how are we going to continue to respond with particularly on the kids side uh, with a bunch of people unvaccinated with opening and closing of uh, school boards across the country. All right. And question number two, is your church ready to re-implement restrictions periodically? So I think, I think we've been thinking about the restrictions in a linear way. It's like, 
they all these restrictions went on in a um you know in a kind of a, a real fast clamp down there last year and then slowly across the country we've seen those clamp downs removed but actually what if you look more carefully at what's going on what we're seeing is an easing of restrictions what there's what's called non-medical interventions uh we're seeing an easing of those but then um you know you'll see some of that get rolled back as variants of concern continue to uh to stroll up and so like we see saw this even this week in miami where uh you know miami went into spring break they knew that there was going to be a lot of people in for for spring break but once actually all those crowds came they changed the rules of the game they changed what it meant to be a curfew so i, I think that personally again i think this is just a an opinion uh, but some of these non-medical interventions needs to wash hands, wear masks, stay a certain number of feet apart between cohorts or between families. These non-medical interventions, I think, will be less like will be the least, will be the last uh, to be removed. They'll be the last things to actually go away. So the question really is, what will social distancing look like uh, into the future? How how will we continue to do that? Uh, what if really we're faced with a scenario uh, that, you know, these kind of changes are are reduced by the public, by public authorities, but actually um, people's opinions around them continue to really lead them to a place where they just don't feel safe unless they're in a place that's that's um, that's living out these uh, these regulations. If you remember traveling before 9-11, do you remember that, Christine, when we used to go? I do. And it's funny that you bring that up because I do remember thinking this feels like a big change. Yes. But I'm over it. Yes, we just got used to it. Yeah. Right? And so, and it was interesting, you know, they, airports changed the way they processed people, right? And, you know, you think about, you know, who would have thought 20 years later we'd still be taking our shoes off as we go through security? And that change literally happened in a weekend. There was the shoe bomber, who, guy who had a bomb in his shoes. This is post 9-11. And they were like, well, we can't have people wear shoes anymore. We still do this all these years later. Now, for years, we used to fly in out of Newark, which uh, obviously at the epicenter of what was going on uh, in New Jersey there at, at, at 9-11. And they never changed their airport. They always had these like uh, just real awkward, you know, security areas where new air airports have dealt with those. I guess the question for us to really ask is, are we going to be facing a new reality on these uh, restrictions that are maybe both imposed by the government but then also just imposed by our people uh will we be will we be able to deal with that and if those change and come and go in the coming years what will look we look like how will we have to think differently uh about uh these restrictions of social distancing all right question number three i was kind of surprised that you include this to be honest but will you take a pro vaccine stance on booster shots so if you look carefully at the research that's predicting kind of what, you know, is going to happen here in the pandemic, we're really excited right now. Everybody's getting their two shots and which is fantastic unless you're taking the J&J shot, which is a single shot. But actually already there are plans afoot uh, to distribute booster shots in the fall of 2021. Um, so just, you know, six months from now. And why is that being planned? That's being planned because of these variants of concern. And um, so this will be something like the annual flu shot, uh, but probably with a bit more uh, robust rollout like we're seeing now uh, with these normal uh, vaccine, um, you know, with the vaccine rollout that we're seeing now across the country. And we asked you this question back Oh gosh, it might have been April last year. And I remember I had people say, that's crazy. That'll never happen. Uh, but would your church be willing to use your facility, 
use your property uh, to help with these vaccine rollouts? Would you be willing to use a weekend service to have people vaccinated there? Um, our buildings are made to move people in and out. They're uh, still in a lot of places, some of the largest parking lots uh, in our communities, which are great for this. And there are churches right now uh, across the country that are being used for this first round of rollout. Um, but, you know, having talked with a couple of church leaders that are doing that, um, churches are doing that, but maybe not talking to, uh, you know, big deal about it publicly. I think there's a question for you and for I to ask that question. Will we take a pro-vaccine stance? Listen, friends, I, I just want to be really clear on this. There was a recent study that only 53% of evangelical adults said they would get the, vi the, the vaccine. Um, that's crazy low. Um, there's, there is uh, vaccine misinformation in your church and in mine. The science and history on vaccines is very clear. Uh, it's clear enough that Penn and Teller or Bill Nye, the science guy, could explain it. There's a couple links in here if you're looking uh, you know, for really fun kind of explanations of the way vaccine works. We can't let fringe elements in our churches represent the anti-vax side of this conversation as if it is a two-sided issue where various opinions should be aired. This is just not one of those this those issues. Vaccines are saving lives. This this is true right now in our communities and has been true for the last hundred years. I can say this as my own mom uh, who had polio, pulled the polio vaccine change. She had polio. It has impacted her her entire life. Uh, the polio vaccines uh, have uh, saved lives across uh, the world. And this is happening right now. Uh, we can't let the anti-vaxxers get the upper hand and even present this as if there's a reasonable case there. There is no reasonable case. We need to find ways to encourage our people to go uh, and get vaccines, but then also to to figure out if we can help uh, on the booster shot situation that we'll find ourselves in uh, coming this fall and beyond. All right, question number four. How will you engage your people in the worldwide family of God without mission trips for the next five years? It's likely that... Uh, robust international travel will be among the very last things to return to normal. It really does seem like a bygone era. So I, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before. When all this hit, I was in Guatemala on a missions trip with student leaders, you know, over these last couple of weeks, right? We've all seen the pictures of where were you a year ago? And I saw some of those pictures again. And I was like, looked, you know, with great fondness back to that trip. Wow. That was an incredible time. But it, it I, I think it's going to feel very strange uh, you know, that we used to be able to just literally go down to our local international airport, jump on a plane, and within hours be engaged with the body of Christ all over the world. Uh, you'll notice that this is dramatic shift in the international missions movement over the last year. Um, and, and, you know, really the thing you and I are going to have to wrestle with is I think a part of a healthy part of a local church is helping people understand that they're part of a global body of Christ, particularly for so many of us who are listening in, we represent the 1% globally. We, we control a tremendous amount of resource. And a part of what we want to do is help motivate those people to give to, uh, you know, missions experiences and, you know, humanitarian and, and Jesus loving, uh, things all over the world. But a big part of the way that we used to motivate people towards that is we'd put them on a and go and take them so they could see it with their own two eyes. How are we going to do that if we can't take people for the next five years? What is that going to look like? 
Um, how do we continue to motivate people? I would say we need to be learning from uh, some international organizations that are finding new ways to integrate people, whether it's, you know, literally having folks from the field join uh, Zoom calls for staff meetings or Zoom calls even into small groups. Uh, what could we be doing uh, to help expand our people's understanding of the body of Christ if we can't get on a plane and go visit people? All right. Question number five, what would it look like shifting to smaller gatherings for years to come? One of the fascinating outcomes of the pandemic will be its psychological impact on people gathering in large crowds. In fact, even just recently in our small group, we were talking to a guy in our small group who was like, I actually am really looking forward to the smaller, the smaller Sunday gathering thing, which for me, like, listen, I was the guy that loved to stand at the back of a packed out room and have to like move the chairs and like, we got to get more room in here, like, and always messing with how do we get more and more people in. Uh, but there's no doubt that um, for the last year to 18 months, the majority of people in, or, or for a year to 18 months, the majority of people in your church will have not been outside of a group much larger than their immediate family or maybe the size of the, their family gathering at Thanksgiving, like a few dozen people at the most. What impact will that have on our ministries when so many of us built on the premise of we've got to pack out a room with a thousand plus people a couple times on Sunday? Uh, you know, should we be looking at redesigning our campuses to have multiple rooms to ac accommodate smaller groups? Should we be doing what some churches have been doing for a long time, which is having multiple worship gatherings happening at the same time in smaller rooms across multiple places on our campuses uh, in order to help people uh, expose themselves to less people and for them to feel like they're more in control? Uh, multi-site churches are particularly well equipped for this and we've been figuring out how to rescale our ministries in different size locations for years and what if we're going to have to figure out you know like if someone was to tell you today this is really the question i've been wrestling with if someone was to say to you today that you're not going able to be able to gather people in a room of any more than pick a number 150, 250 people for the next five years, what differences would you make? What difference decisions would you be making today? How would you be thinking different about your reopening process and re-engaging process if you knew you just were never gonna get back to that full room? Rather than tr trying to continually figure out how to get 30 people to fit, to fit six feet apart in your buildings, should we be repositioning those spaces to look for smaller, quicker, tinier, uh, you know, meeting spaces rather than trying to figure out how we get the most people into the room. All right. Well, those are some great questions. Slightly overwhelming as a church leader myself, if I'm honest. But um, if there's someone feeling the same way I am, or maybe they're doing okay, but what's a great next step for listeners to take? Listen, we always want to have a position of hope here at Unseminary. I've been super encouraged to see all the amazing things that have been going on in the local church over the last you know, the year. It's been amazing to watch. I guess this, this article is a, is a pause to say, Hey, let's not just continue to run back to way, the way things were. Maybe the pandemic continues to shift. Uh, a year ago, I talked with a, a doctor who, um, she said something that has proven to be the truest thing in this whole pandemic. Uh, this was in April last year, so relatively early. And um, she's an emergency room doctor. And, uh, and, she, and I was asking her, hey, well, what do you think? And she said, well, I don't really know anything. And I stopped her and I said, hey, listen, you are a doctor. You know things. Uh, you, have, you, know, you think about this more than I do. And she said, and this is the thing that has proven to me more true. She said, the one thing I do know is the longer this goes on, 
the longer it will go on. Um, and that has really proven to be true. Who would have thought a year later we would find ourselves here? The question I'm asking myself in this article and asking us in this article is what if we're, what if we're on the front end of the changes that we've seen, not the end of it? What if we're just on the front end of how this thing is rolling out in our culture? Uh, do we need to be thinking differently about our reopening, regathering? How do we go and find more people to come and attend our church? Uh, and so what I would say is gather your team together, maybe use this article if it's, if it's um, you know, if it's helpful. These might be five interesting questions to wrestle through uh, with your people as you think about uh, your process, uh, you know, during the season. All right. Thank you, Rich. And thank you to our listeners. You can find this and other helpful articles at unseminary.com. 